Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we have spent um, the last few weeks looking at Satan and where we are in this uh, in our study of the book of Revelation is that Satan has been purged from heaven and that he's come down to earth in great wrath. Uh, and the, the angelic chorus of heaven itself says, woe to you earth because Satan has come down. And what we're going to look at today is an individual who gets one spot in your Bible. He, he's a, a representative, as it were, of many people throughout the scriptures. And what he's going to do is fulfill the, uh, or complete, the unholy trinity. Satan is an imposter and a deceiver. And what he does throughout his ministry, or his, I don't know if ministry is the right word for that, uh, but throughout his work on earth is seek to deceive. Uh, and we saw last week the first beast, the Antichrist, the beast that rises from the sea. And we saw Satan hand his authority to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, we said, was going to be a political power, a political ruler who comes from a ten-nation power from the, uh, from the west out of the sea. And he's going to exercise all the authority of Satan himself on this planet. And what we're going to see today is, is the third member of this unholy trinity. We've seen Satan himself. We've seen the Antichrist. And what we're going to see is today is an individual, a second beast, who's going to be called the false prophet. Uh, all through your Bible, great political powers have next to them uh, spiritual counselors. David had spiritual counselors next to him. If you move back into the Exodus narratives, you remember Pharaoh had magicians and sorcerers that were in his court that mimicked and um, sought to do the same miracles that Moses did. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the great Babylonian king, he has Daniel in his court of advisors, and he has um, dreams that he commands these mystic advisors to interpret for him. When Paul and Peter go about their ministries, they encounter men called Elymas, who are deceivers. Uh, a guy named Simon the Sorcerer and Elymas were two guys who opposed the work of the apostles as they go through the New Testament. So every single time that you have political powers that rise, you have next to them religious powers that seek to uh, affirm and empower and uh, unite all uh, authority in uh, these two worlds, politics, religion, and what we'll see later on is economics in this book. So this is an individual called the false prophet. He's going to operate very much like the Spirit of God does. As the unholy trinity uh, takes shape here in chapter 13, you have them mimicking the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus comes, Jesus says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That I always do what is pleasing to the Father. The Father calls Jesus Christ to rule and to reign in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. That he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And then Jesus talks about the spirit coming. And the spirit uh, will glorify me and teach you all things. Remember that? So that the Spirit now has this role on earth where he leads men into righteousness. He convicts the world of sin and condemnation and judgment. That's the work of the Spirit. And we're going to see all of that show up here in the great imposter called the false prophet. Now, this text is an interesting one because it's all about deception. It's all about a teacher rising to power and being fantastic at what he does. That this false teacher is going to have the same kind of authority as the beast. He's going to look different than the first beast. He's going to have a much different ministry, as it were. But he's going to be deadly. He's going to be deceptive. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be the contrast to the last week beast that we saw who was like the leopard and like the uh, bear and like the lion. And this beast is going to be more subtle. This beast is going to be more deceptive. This beast probably sounds good to listen to. This beast is going to have a great preaching ministry. This beast is going to be very convincing. This beast is going to speak like the FM late night radio DJ. 
and everybody's going to follow him. So I want to begin with a big question that we'll answer toward the end of our time together. But whoever you are, no matter what season of life you are in, you walk into a Sunday morning church service and you have areas of life where you, your spiritual life and your physical life are out of sync, right? That there are things that you know to be true of God and who he is and how he works and what the Bible says, but they don't look like things that are happening in your life. You ever been there? That, that you have a, a divine kind of dissatisfaction with the way things ought to be, the way your spiritual life doesn't line up with your physical. And the, and the key question we need to ask and answer in a text that's all about deception is would you trade your faith for sight? When Satan comes to Eve, he asks this very important question, did God say, right? And then she ta- he, he paints this beautiful picture in front of her saying that you won't surely die and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. And Eve goes and she looks at the fruit. She says good for food and it's desirous to make one wise. And she takes it and eats it and gives some to her husband. And, and Satan, in effect, sets up this temptation to say, if you would remove God's word and have all of the blessings all of the answered prayer, but the ex- at the expense of faith in God's word, would you do it? And that's the power of the false prophet. That's what you're going to have here. This text should make your heart ache at how powerful and deceptive and convincing he is. So, Revelation 13. Let's pray. Father, this is a text that we come to with fear and trembling. This is a text we come to knowing the temptation that resides in all of our hearts to not walk by faith in your word, but to walk by sight in the things that we want. We all know that temptation. We all feel times and seasons in life where things are not the way we want them to be and we wrestle in our relationship with you. Would you cause us to be people who rests in the word? Would we build our lives on the truth of what you say? Would we, like like Jesus says to the serpent in the wilderness, believe down to the core of who we are that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? For those who come in here this morning, Father, and are discouraged and uncertain and don't know who you are or what you're doing or what this season means or how even to trust you, I pray that this text would enlighten us and give us courage and faith and strength despite what we see and despite what we feel. Would we return again to the fresh spring of God's word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation 13, verse 11 is where we're going to be, and we're just going to work our way down to the end of that chapter. If you need a Bible, there should be one right around you somewhere, a black one in one of the pews. Uh, Go ahead and grab that. Turn to the very last book all the way to your right to Revelation chapter 13. That's where we'll be. All right, Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now, this is going to be a contrast. You saw the last beast rise from the sea as Satan stands on the sand of the sea and looks toward the west, and he sees, in effect, this this beast of of horrible apex predator uh, type of beast, right? We saw last week these beasts were the the worst of the worst. They were the top of their game, the the lion, the uh, bear, and the leopard, Well, this beast is going to rise from the earth. Some commentators think that he's not going to be a political ruler as such. He's going to be somewhat of a religious ruler. He's going to rise out of a current religious establishment. And I'll show you why they say that here in a second. But let's look at this description of the the beast. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, I'm not an outdoorsy fellow. I'm ruggedly indoorsy. But I know that lambs are not big. They're little. I lived in Texas for a period of time, and I used to live by a 
by a ranch. And I would drive down a gravel path uh, on my way to this place, this ranch where I lived. And one of the homes that were on the way to this uh, place had goats, and they were little, little baby goats. And I had this, I have this great illustration, you, you know, the scriptures talk about, you'll leap like lambs from the stall, right? You, you heard that before? Talking about the joy uh, of what it means for, anyway. The point is, I'm driving and my windows are open and I see a little baby goat. And it's just as you, I don't know what you think about lambs leaping from the stall. I didn't know lambs could leap or they were that energetic. They just seemed small and little. Little bitty lambs, little bitty goats jump. And they jump like they're trying to prove something, jump. And I'm driving down my gravel lot and I look over to my left and here's this goat, this little, I mean, this thing is not like, it's probably that big. 15 inches, maybe. And it's jumping its height next to me, excited to see me jumping, bleeding or what? I don't know what goats do. They bleat. They bleat. Thank you. They bleat. Goats bleat, right? And it's jumping. And so the thing I know about goats and about baby animals that are sheep is that they're not impressive animals, right? If you see a lion, we've taken our kids to the zoo to see lions. Lions are regal and powerful and impressive. Bears are just plain scary. They're like an appetite with fur and anger, right? They're these giant things. Leopards, same thing. Sleek, fast, predators, you know? They take things apart. But we don't go to see lambs, right? We're not awed by lambs. So the contrast is very clear here, isn't it? That last week we saw this this beast that's a combination of all the top flight predators on this planet, But then now we have a two-horned animal that's not that big, not that impressive, that looks like a lamb. Now, all the way through the book of Revelation, who is the lamb referred to? Jesus, right? The lamb is used 28 different times in this book, and every single time it refers to Jesus, except here. So here's John, who has already been in heaven, and he's already seen a lamb with seven horns in Revelation chapter 5, standing as if slain. And now he turns and looks, and completing this unholy trinity is someone who doesn't look that impressive. Someone who looks calm and meek and gentle and mild and not very strong, except in the way that it speaks. When you read your New Testament through and you you read about false teachers, Paul talks about false apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, of course these false apostles speak the way they do because Satan masquerades as an angel of light and his servants masquerade the same way. That when it comes to false prophets, generally speaking, They aren't large, muscular individuals. They're not gladiatorial combat kind of people. They're simple and plain and sweet and tender and melodic and compelling and persuasive because they speak like dragons. Now, have you noticed up to this point how John is experiencing these visions? He's seeing these visions with his eyes, and what he, he encourages us with is having ears to hear, right? That's what we closed with last week, having ears to hear. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, and now he sees another beast come onto the scene that has a preaching ministry that speaks And he doesn't look like he shares the dragon's characteristics of political power and authority, but he looks like and sounds like the dragon himself. Now, let's see what this lamb looks like. Look at verse 12. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence. These two beasts will work in concert. They they work together. I made this joke last week, but this beast, this lamb, is the hype man for the first beast. He's going to cause everybody to pay attention to the Antichrist. He's going to use all of his skill and oratory and rhetoric and being persuasive in the way that he speaks and encourages and models and uh, highlights and exalts the first beast and the Antichrist, that he exercises authority, this satanic authority in his presence. 
So they're all in agreement. Not only that, he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. And we said this last week. This is why he calls people to worship the first beast. Look at what the remainder of the verse says in verse 12. That his mortal wound was healed. That's what we said last week about the first beast. The first beast, it seems, has some sort of pseudo-resurrection. That it seems like he's back from the dead. And here's the false prophet who is communicating now and preaching the greatness of the Antichrist. That this is the one who you should follow. Aren't you impressed with the accomplishment and the strength and the power that this leader has on earth? When everything is uncertain and everything is shuffled on our planet. And there's economic distress and political distress and national distress. And the social norms that we've followed for so long have now fallen apart and people are murdering each other and look at this man who now it looks like has risen from the dead and now this false prophet comes around this this false prophet begins to preach the greatness and the exaltation and the wonder of the Antichrist and it comes in his speaking see false teaching generally speaking is false because of doctrine But false teaching is persuasive because of tone, right? We don't have a problem with false teachers who yell at us, typically, right? We're kind of too savvy for that. But false teachers who smuggle in false doctrine under great looks, powerful rhetoric, compelling speech, savvy communication skills, and ability to navigate social media becomes impressive, it becomes exalting, it becomes uh, something that draws people after it, and all of a sudden, those are the ones with millions of followers. Are you surprised? This false prophet is very, no doubt, very, very winsome, very compelling and persuasive in the way that he speaks, and he causes, look at what he causes, he causes people to worship. He's not even drawing attention to himself, is he? He's almost so meek and humble that he causes you to look away from him to the Antichrist himself. Now, it's not without power. Look at verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven. Now, that's an interesting sign, isn't it? Isn't that a sign that we've seen in the book of Revelation already? Remember the two witnesses? That the two witnesses themselves had the power to call down fire from heaven whenever they wished against their enemies. But the two witnesses were to be killed by the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. They're to be killed by the Antichrist. So the Antichrist will rise to power, will put to death these two witnesses, and will put another individual in their place who does identical miracles. Now remember the two witnesses. Who did they look like? They look like Moses and they look like Elijah. So let's stay with the Elijah theme just for a second. Elijah, we said had two moments in his, in his ministry career where he calls down fire from heaven. One is at the end, and he turns armies into barbecue. And the first one, though, is the conflict that happens with uh, him and the prophets of Baal. So Ahab and Jezebel were the kings of Israel at that time, and they are going after the Baals. They're going after false worship. And Elijah confronts the nation And he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? The people of Israel had a problem with syncretism. That I'll do a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of God, a little bit of Sunday, and I'll do a little bit of worship of the false gods over here. And I'll put them together and I'll have the best of both worlds. And Elijah says, we're going to have a celebrity death match. We're going to have a one-on-one, Baal versus God. And here are the rules. The God that answers by fire from heaven is the one that you will follow. And everybody goes, great, we're for that. Let's do that. Let's prove and let's see which God is the real God. Now, Baal is impotent in the story. Everybody's prancing around and singing and praising Baal and telling him to show up. And Elijah's like sitting on the side, mocking him and like making fun of the prophets. He's like the great Old Testament sarcastic prophet. He's awesome. And then uh, he takes the sacrifice, he pours a whole bunch of water on it, throws, it makes a trench, fills the trench with water, and he says, God, answer. 
and God answers, and it validates the message. So here's the false prophet. The false prophet shows up on the scene as the two witnesses are killed. And after three and a half days, the breath of God revives them. They are uh, resurrected, and they get taken into heaven. And now there's another prophet on the scene, only this time where Baal was impotent in the Old Testament, and he could not answer by fire, this prophet can. That should scare you. See, signs always accompany preaching in your Bible. Moses does signs to validate that he has received the word of God. Elijah and Elisha do signs as evidence that they are the true and recognized prophets of God. Jesus does signs because he proves that he is a divine son of God. The apostles do signs, validating the message going forward. And by the time you get to the end of your Bible, this false prophet is given the authority to do the same signs as the Old Testament prophets and the two witnesses of their day. Only it's married, not with a message of truth, but with a message of deception. He makes fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Now that's pretty compelling, isn't it? He's compelling worship, and at the same time, he's preaching the greatness of this beast. He's now deceiving people who are on the earth. He's validating his preaching message with signs, and everybody is being deceived. He's telling them not only that, to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, that should be, a little siren should go off. That's a pretty... Uh, there may be lots of truths and rules that God has given that you're not aware of, but this one is commandment number two, right? We've heard of this one, right? You shall have no other gods before me, and commandment number two is don't make anything that's a false god and looks like God. So that here's this false prophet's ministry. As his ministry goes forth and people are deceived and uh, approving of these great and wonderful signs that he's doing, he's now smuggling in heresy underneath the signs. And he's saying, these signs are wonderful and aren't I great and you should follow the beast and what you should also do is begin to make images. Begin to exalt the name of the Antichrist. Which when somebody tells you to make an image, you should be thinking to yourself, I'm pretty sure that's not what God told us to do. But those who dwell on earth are, are too compelled by what they see. They're too compelled by the, the glory and the majesty and the power and the wonder and the signs of this false prophet and the Antichrist and the authority that Satan has given in them that in effect they close their minds and hearts to the truth of God. Now, why does this happen? Can I, can I show you? Keep your finger in uh, Revelation 14. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians 2. Right after 1 and 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, take a look at verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him, talking about the Antichrist, so that now he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now watch this, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders. Behind the false prophet and behind the Antichrist is the power and the authority of Satan himself. Verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, which we just read in Revelation 13, because they, watch this, refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, 
I refuse to believe and to accept the truth that God has revealed to us in his word about Jesus Christ and who he is. I refuse that. I close my mind to it. I exchange the truth of God for a lie. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I'll come back to Revelation 13. Why does this happen? It's because the love of man for a lie, the pursuit that man has in loving unrighteousness, now will begin to be affirmed by politics and religion. And God will hand them over to the desires of their heart. Now look at verse 15. You back in, I'm sorry, back in Revelation 13. Y'all back there? Flip back, Revelation 13. Now, it told them to make an image. Now, has there been another spot in your Bible where political powers have told people to make an image? You remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2? And he tells everybody, we're going to make this image and it's going to be awesome. And we're going to raise up this image and you're going to hear all the sounds of all the worship leaders and they're all going to be standing around the image and they're going to play their harps and their bells and whistles and all the other things the Babylonians had to worship this, this, uh, this image. And when the music plays, you are all supposed to fall down and worship. And if you don't, you get a coexist sticker and you can put it on your car because we're all just going to get along with each other and pluralism is great. Is that what happens? No, they say what we're going to do is throw you into the fiery furnace if you don't fall down and worship the image. Now, guess... What do you think the false prophet's going to tell people if they don't worship the false image? Don't read ahead. Just guess. Verse 15. Now watch this. This is amazing what God allows this false prophet to do. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Not only does the false prophet call down fire from heaven, it now has the supernatural ability to animate images, to animate idols themselves. Do you know, if you ever read in the Psalms, you read Psalm 115. Psalm 115 talks about idols that are made by human hands. They're called the work of men's hands. And it says they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but don't speak. They have feet, but can't walk. They're totally impotent. And those who follow after them will become like them. Now, in Revelation 13, the false prophet is given the ability to make dead things come to life. Does that sound familiar? That when you read through the Old Testament, when the breath of God comes into Adam, he becomes a living being. When, he, when God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the valley of dry bones, he says prophesy to the breath. And the breath comes and the people of Israel rise upon their feet like a great army. And now this false prophet has the power to give breath. It's the same phrase that's used earlier about the two witnesses that the breath of God came into and they were resurrected and went to heaven. So this false prophet now has the authority to give new life. Are you seeing how compelling this is? How compelling this spiritual experience is to the people who are on earth? Uh, he's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast, the image of the beast, to be slain. That now this idol that has been animated by the false prophet can now condemn people to death. There it is. You don't fall down to worship the Antichrist, to death you go. Verse 16, also, it gets better. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. How, what, how many groups of people do you have? You have people from every corner of the planet. It causes both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name that he gives an external sign of an inward reality. The, uh, look forward with me in Revelation 14. Just flip one page. Um, and I want you to see this. Just this one verse here, 14.9. See 14.9? Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image 
and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. The marking is not just we can buy and sell. It's deeper than that. It's a declaration that I follow wholeheartedly after the Antichrist. So much so that I look to this political and religious system of the day to allow me provision, protection, comfort, medicine, food, water, anything that I would need economically that I'm able to receive, I receive from the hand of the Antichrist and the false prophet of the day. And what I do in my worship and following along is now uh, do two things with this sign. One, I receive an identity. I receive acceptance from the false, unholy trinity of the day. And two, I refuse any and all other gods. That when the Antichrist sets himself up as God... He sets himself up against every other world religion. Satan, in his deception, has allowed there to be pluralism. He's fine with that because he's okay with the 99 other ways that you think you're fine to come to God. As long as I can get you to believe in anything other than the way, the truth, and the life, I'm good with that. I got you. Until Revelation 13. And then he will turn and he will demand that your worship is no longer pluralist. Your worship is now unified. Your worship, in a sense, is monotheistic. And he has declared himself to be God. Now, let's summarize this false prophet's ministry real quick, okay? And then I want to give you something to think on. He has as his goal the exaltation of the Antichrist, the exaltation of the first beast. He looks away from himself and leverages his power to raise up and to exalt the Antichrist. Number two, he's able to accomplish spiritual signs like the prophets, validating his message, validating that the Antichrist is the one that you should go after and the one that you should follow. He he has this great power of affirming his speech that is winsome and speaking like a dragon. Number three, he's got the ability to give breath and life to dead things. Are you seeing the, the divine imposter? Are you seeing the, the contrast between the spirit of God and the spirit of the Antichrist? Number four, that he has a ceiling and an ownership that he lays claim to all of your life, all the way down to your pennies and dimes. Now, last week, we closed with this call, right? Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. We're going to have a different call here that John gives in verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Here are the spiritual realities that you're going to need in that day. Endurance that you've got to go all the way to the end. With your faith and trust in who God is and what he has said, and you're going to have to conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony because they love their lives not unto death. Number two is you've got to have faith. You've got to put your faith not in what you see and in terms of the whole world that is now going after the Antichrist and the preaching of the false prophet empowered by Satan himself. You're going to need faith to see in those days. And number three, you're going to need wisdom. Because it's only the Christian, it's only the one with with the Bible in his hand in this day who's going to be able to interpret not by what he sees because everything that he sees is going to be aligned in worship with the Antichrist. Everything. And he's going to have to, she is going to have to take a stand with wisdom in their heart and the word of God in their hand to be able to discern what is happening in this day. This calls for wisdom. This is one of the most hotly debated and confusing verses in all of Revelation. So don't get scared. It's okay. We'll make it through together. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six, six. Six. Now, what is this? Um, what, what day was man created? Day six, right? Seven in the book of Revelation typically has to do with God and has to do with completeness, right? Perfection. 
And we've said this through the book of Revelation, that Satan does his best work in his proximity to the truth, right? The best lies are the ones that are as close as you can. They're 89.5 degrees off of 90. And that's where Satan does his best work. The, the lies down here that are two degrees, you know, not that close, not very good lies. But here's what Satan does as he begins to exalt mankind. Satan isn't necessarily even seen. His character is seen through two particular men in this day. His power and his authority and his preaching ministry are all empowered by Satan so that mankind is set up to destroy and remove and hate God and his dwelling. Remember that's what we said about Satan? That he blasphemes the name and his dwelling and sets himself up as God. So it must be that during this time, there's some way in which the believer in Jesus Christ, the believer in the blood of the lamb, is going to be able to discern and understand this number and this marking. Some people think it has to do with um, a way in which numbers and letters have an, an equal value, that you assign a number to an alphabet and somehow come up with 666. Whatever it is, we're not told to have the spirit of math, right? We're told to have the spirit of understanding. So that in this day and when this individual is revealed, the ones who have wisdom in their mind, the ones who through endurance and faith are moving through this season where all of the planet is in darkness and in the grip of the Antichrist and his false prophet, they're able to discern. They're like the men of Issachar. Remember the men of Issachar? Maybe you don't. They were individuals who were around during David's period. When David gets ready to rise to power, it says the men of Issachar, Issachar, ah. the men of Issachar, understood the times, and knew what Israel should do. And here's John in the end days telling you, pay attention. Use your mind. Don't believe what you see. Now, let me apply this text. This is a text all about deception. This is a text all about watching the world go after the false prophet watching judgment fall immediately for their refusal to worship the image, watching this persuasive, worldly kind of wisdom come through these two individuals, empowered by the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience, among a world that has traded truth for unrighteousness. You know, I don't know how long you have been walking with the Lord. Maybe you're right at the front end. And those of us who began our walk with the Lord, remember time. You remember times where uh, when you would pray, it felt like the answers came within minutes? Where you remember these, these places in your life where you, you prayed and go, God, do I go left or right? And it was like God was right there with you. And he's like, go left. And he's like, I'm walking in the spirit. This is great. God, left or right? Right. Okay, I'm going to go right. And this is great. And God's with me. And I'm, I'm knowing his word. I'm understanding who he is. And then, you know, you start walking with God. And all of a sudden, somewhere in the story of Christianity, the voice of God starts to get distant. You ever been there? That that God now, it's almost like our relationship with God changes and that we go through valleys of darkness or we go through dark nights where we're not sure God is out there and we meet people who go, I'm just walking so close with God right now and he's just so sweet to my spirit and I just love him so much and you want it. <laughs> and you go, I don't know where he is or what he's doing. I don't understand having faith in him in this season. It doesn't seem like God's showing up or answering my prayers, and it seems real quiet, and he seems real far off. And listen, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be close with God. Like, I get paid to do that. And I still have those seasons where I go, God, I don't, I don't know where you are right now. I can't see what you're doing, and I don't understand what's happening, and I believe you and I trust you and I feel like I just don't, I don't know where you are. 
And let me tell you that, that those are discouraging seasons, but those prove something very, very important about our relationship with God. It proves that you have a real relationship with a real God. Right? Imagine, like I, we're coming up on being married 12 years. Imagine if like I had to follow my wife around the house asking her consistently, hey, do you love me? Hey, you still there? Hey, what are you doing now? Hey, do you want to have coffee? Hey, we should go and do something. We can't. We have six kids. We can't do anything. We're stuck in the house. What do you want to do now? Right? So that my relationship with my wife is, is different early. And as my relationship matures with my wife, there's a sensitivity that we know each other, we understand each other, and we don't have to have these ongoing conversations where we're like, you love me and I love you and you still love me? I still love you. Do you love me? You're still there? Still there? You still love me? I love you, right? And that's how God, like, that's a part of our relationship with God. Don't be discouraged when that happens. Because the temptation when those seasons come is to feel like God's not here and God's not doing anything. But I, I want to show you something so important to your relationship with God. It's something that a lot of times for people, it's the first thing that is neglected. That we go through these seasons and we're not sure what God's doing or where he is, and we would so long to have sight rather than faith, right? You know Jesus went through this? Jesus, when he's in the, the temptation with Satan, you know what we read today? We read Psalm 91. You know what Psalm 91? Psalm 91 is what Satan quotes to Jesus to say, throw yourself off the temple because God's got all these angels and they're not going to let you be hurt and you're not going to go through difficulty and hardship. And Satan respond, uh, uh, Jesus responds back to Satan, right? And he responds with Deuteronomy. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is a requoting of something that happens in Exodus 18. Now, stay with me. Jesus says, you won't put, don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? You've heard that? Do you know what that means? Do you know why Jesus quotes that? He quotes it because in Exodus 18, the people of Israel, after just been provided for by God with water and manna and quail, they grumble against God. And they say, is God among us or not? And they use their relationship to back God into a corner. And they go, God, if you're God, you should do what I say. Newsflash, God don't work like that. Right? You've been walking with Jesus a while. Have you ever been frustrated in your relationship with God because God doesn't play nice? God doesn't play by the rules? You think you're supposed to have this mono-e-mono relationship, intimacy with God relationship, and then all of a sudden God tricks you? And you feel like, well, I don't know where he is or what he's doing. I've got the word and I've got my faith in what he says, but I don't know where he is. I don't feel close to him. And what I really want God to do is show up in the way I want him to. And there Jesus stands as Satan brings him the word of God and says, hey, you can get God to do what you want him to do. And Jesus says, no, I will not put him to the test. I'm going to trust him. So what do you do when it feels like the whole world, because Satan is tapping into something very near and dear to all of our hearts, isn't he? The false prophet is doing something that's so incredibly compelling. He's, he, he's removing the need for faith. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to believe in his word. I will give you the miracles that you have wanted for so long. I will give you the validation of my message in signs and in wonders. Just trade your faith for sight. I want to close here. Turn to John 14. Because I want to show you what God gives us in these moments. Jesus, in the, as he talks and prays here in John 14, talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will do. And what I want you to watch here is, is kind of three big ideas, the word, obedience, and intimacy. 
okay? The word, obedience, and intimacy, and they're all intertwined. Because look, I, I, wherever you are, you are in the midst of this temptation, aren't you? You are in the midst of these temptations where you want your faith to be sight and it's not. You want God to answer miraculously and he isn't. And that you are in the 400 level graduate course when you're dealing with that question. Amen, Christians? John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What did the false prophet get rid of? He got rid of the word. You don't need the word. You have the experience. You don't need the word. You have the miraculous. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of what? Well, why not the spirit of miracles? Because... God loves you enough to tell you the truth. The thing about idols and false preaching is it never tells you the truth about who you are. It never exposes you. It never commands you. It never declares to you that you ought to repent and change. But now we're given the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That he seals you, right? Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Isn't that good news? That God himself knows your name and comes to get you, comes to be with you, comes to draw near to you through the power of the Spirit. Yet a little while, And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's just confusing, but the point is the intimacy of God, isn't it? Isn't that the point? Is that now, through my obedience and trust in the Spirit of truth, leading me to know God and his name, I now have a kind of intimacy that I I cannot receive anywhere else that the world does not know or understand or see or perceive because of what Jesus has done for me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him, and will make our home with him. Do you know why I preach expositionally? Do you know why I preach verse by verse? It's not because I'm just convinced that that I'm not creative. That I go, I don't know, 14 comes after 13, let's try it like that. It's not particularly even that God's word is true, though it is. That is an incredibly compelling reason to preach God's word. But I believe because of John 14 that you knowing God through his word means that God invests intimacy of relationship, particularly in his word and through the spirit. That God loves you enough to draw near to you and his word and through the power of the spirit and to tell you what is true, to convict you of sin, to cause you to repent, to remind you that the spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. And when Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, I go, amen. Because we can't know God in any other way apart from him investing himself into his word with us. That's how we know him. Do you you see what Jesus says? We'll come and make our home with you. We'll, We'll manifest ourselves to you. That you can have a real relationship with the living God, the creator of heaven and earth because of God's word. Why would we give people anything else? 
And the temptation of Revelation 13 is to trade faith and the word for what you can see and put your hands on. And Jesus had that temptation and you have that temptation and I have that temptation. But God loves us enough to tell us the truth. God loves us enough to draw near to us in the word and that through the word of God and the spirit of God, they come together and they make our, our hearts come alive with an understanding of who Christ is. This is why Peter says, though you don't see him, you love him and are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is why it's good that Jesus goes away because otherwise we'd all be in line, right? We'd all be waiting to see Jesus. But Jesus knows that when the spirit of truth comes, he's able to minister the deepest parts of who we are, to make Jesus come alive in our hearts, for us to come here and to have people from every different walk of life all come together and shoulder to shoulder to sing about Jesus and who he is because the spirit of God affirms the word of God, telling the people of God that they're loved by the son of God. Amen? So we need the truth. We don't need miracles. We need the truth of God ministering to us through the Spirit of God and the Word of God that you, remember what Jesus says? That my sheep not see my miracles. My sheep hear my voice. First John 5, he has given, uh, this is First John 5, uh, somewhere in my notes. I'll find it here in a second. Really good. It's in your Bible too. First John 5. Uh, here you go. First John 5, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as dependent sheep, needing to hear your voice. For people who come in and don't know what you're doing or where you are, I pray that the word of God would come alive in their hearts today, that they would see you perhaps for the first time, that you would encourage them through your word to know that you haven't left us, that though we walk through the valley of darkness, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. That we need your word, we need your wisdom, we need your spirit to draw our eyes to Jesus Christ. Father, would you give us courage and wisdom in our day? Would we have endurance and faith to lay hold of the truth of who you are? In Christ's name, amen.